1: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
0: Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast, as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello
2: and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. In the wake of the FTX blow-up, one positive theme emerged. The survival, more or less, of decentralized finance, better known as DeFi. While FTX, Celsius, Voyager, and other so-called CFI centralized finance crypto exchanges, went bust, leaving millions of customers locked out of the frozen accounts and facing a pennies-in-the-dollar resolution, DeFi platforms such as Aave, Uniswap, Maker, SushiSwap, and Compound kept rolling along. Everyone lost money as crypto prices fell with the broader market, but the services themselves kept functioning and, for the most part, owners maintained active control over their assets. That's encouraging for those who see in this nascent, radical new approach to borrowing, lending, and insurance, a way to unlock innovation and to reduce middleman costs and inefficiencies in the wider global economy. There's still a long way to go before DeFi can be trusted by the wider global financial system to distribute credit, set interest rates, and manage collateral, but headway is being made. That's why it's a pleasure to be joined today by Polygon's global head of institutional capital, Colin Butler. For those among our listeners who don't know of Polygon, it's a blockchain that was set up to interact directly with the Ethereum blockchain and help to improve some of its inefficiencies and scaling challenges. Polygon runs on and alongside the Ethereum blockchain, providing a bridge between different Ethereum-based products. In 2022, despite crypto winter, activity surged on the Polygon network. That's partly because it brought in some of the biggest names in mainstream finance, including Robinhood and JP Morgan, which recently used Polygon to execute its first DeFi trade, in that case using tokenized Singapore dollars. Can these early use cases be scaled and optimized for broad-based mainstream usage of DeFi? Well, I'm looking forward to hearing Colin's take on that. He says 2023 will be the year of institutional DeFi. It will be great to hear a positive take about building new products to get beyond all of the gloomy stuff we had to deal with at the end of last year. Speaking of last year, I have not been in a podcast recording with my co-host, Sheila Warren, since then. So let's get her in here before we talk to Colin. How are you, my old friend?
1: Hey, Michael. How's it going? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. I'm freezing in San Francisco, as one does.
2: Yeah, yeah. That sort of, that bitterly cold uh, Arctic place, <laughs> yes, San Francisco. Yes. Or um, Arctic winter. <laughs> speaking of cold, colder places, we missed you in Davos, where usually, you know, you used to be a fixture over there, Sheila, but uh, Yeah, you I
1: got to tell you, I was gleefully not there. Yes. Yeah, 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 <laughs> Zero yeah. regrets. Um yeah. was very, Fair very enough. happy to Fair take... Enough. Finally, take a break from uh, from the true winter and the icy, snowy hills and mountains. I'm not and all the
2: hot air as well. That's right,
1: and all the hot air. But (laughs) I have to say thank you to all. My phone. I think my phone actually exploded that week with folks just wondering, you know, where was I and was I there and this and that. And I almost felt like I needed to do a big announcement. Like, no, I am not on the premises.
2: It was pretty good. I mean, I, yeah, what um, always we, is. We, we got some presents. CoinDesk, you know, managed to sort of get its name around the place, and we did some interesting stuff. I think the mood was moderately, with all things considered. Obviously, against the benchmarking of of FTX as you know the existential crisis that some people thought it would be, uh, I thought it was actually okay. It wasn't that bad. The mood was relatively upbeat, but of course, it also graciously thanked me. For my presence, Davos, that is, with COVID. So I came back, spent a week. (laughs) I mean, there's there's always a
1: kicker, isn't there? Well, hopefully we'll be back next year. And hopefully that by then COVID will be less of a a guest as well at at the whole event. But listen, today is actually, as it turns out, the day we're recording is my one year anniversary as the CEO of CCI.
2: Ah, Which congratulations.
1: Is, I know. I can't believe it's been a year. And I also can't believe that it's only been a year because <laughs> of crypto time. My goodness, right? Just reflecting on like starting off as a building a bull market CEO and then suddenly being like a building a crisis CEO is in a very interesting transition. Uh, really excited to hear from our guests today about how Polygon yeah. the project has been thinking about this time too, right? Just this, just a little bit of reflection on kind of what this new moment that we're in for crypto means for such a prominent project.
2: Absolutely. So let's get him in. Colin, nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us.
0: Nice to meet you, Michael. Sheila, it is a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me to uh, to hang out with you guys.
2: Yes. Yeah, so are we. So listen, first of all, I want to explain what Polygon is. You're sort of in the layer two space, but you're, own, you're actually your own blockchain. First of all, not our readers are going to understand what the hell layer two <laughs> is for that matter. But like, Maybe in layman terms, you can explain what Polygon is as a protocol, as a network.
0: If you think of the idea that a utility chain like Ethereum has a lot of value in terms of building smart contracts on top of something like that and all the cool use cases that it enables, what we really want to do at at Polygon is allow very cost-effective access uh, to that chain. So it's, it's really our tagline would be bringing the world to Ethereum. So what that means to us is creating something that is high security, that is high throughput and low cost and very reliable and leverages Ethereum's security and decentralization, which I think in blockchain, like that's kind of really what we're all here for, right? We're really excited about those ideas and what they enable. And so Polygon is really focused on kind of serving that Ethereum community. And we, we really view our community as an extension of that community. So I hope that's kind of the, the high level. At some point you get into like the layer two, or are you a layer one? Like what exactly does that stuff mean? I think longer term, the use cases, especially from my seat as, as head of institutional capital, are often more financial use cases where, where security is very important. So if Real world users are coming through our chain to Ethereum that needs to be high security. And that to us means zero knowledge. I don't want to get super technical, but what zero knowledge means is the ability to prove you know something without actually having to go through the steps. And so what it does is it it runs that algorithm. It was a very advanced algorithm. It took the world decades to figure that out that technology. And a billion dollars from Polygon, by the way. And a lot of people said. Hmm. It wouldn't even happen. Like people said, this was impossible. And I think it happened a lot faster than a lot of people thought, uh, because it's really here now. Um, It is on testnet right now. It will be going live on mainnet in the not too distant future. This will be a technology that is available to everybody. And if if you speak with somebody like uh, Vitalik Buterin, one of the key founders of Ethereum, he would say the holy grail of, of scaling for Ethereum is going to be this kind of zero knowledge layer two technology. And that is Polygon's sweet spot at this juncture.
2: I'm of the view that zero knowledge proofs are going to prove to be perhaps one of the greatest contributions of cryptography to the world. You know, ultimately, the solution for how we deal with everything from you know the the data mining that is imposed upon human beings, and yet the need to obviously transact and trust each other and build things. So that the ability to try to actually have those two things rolled into one has so many different applications. What I find really interesting about the role that cryptocurrencies has played and tokens and, and blockchains is that it sort of like fast-tracked the exercise because zero knowledge, of course, precede, they're not a crypto thing in terms of a blockchain thing. they preceded this. Um, but as you said, it took a lot of work to develop this and it turns out a lot of money. I always wonder, like, would we have ever gotten there if it weren't? So people wonder, what is all this speculation for? right? What is all this money being driven for? In some respects, it did juice the development of certain innovations. One of which is this, I think, very forward advance in zero knowledge proofs, which one day the rest of the world will actually appreciate for what it actually is.
1: I think it's worth noting that zero knowledge proofs, the initial concept, has been around since the '80s, but it yeah. really took something that could leverage it, namely, you know, the blockchain, uh, for a different kind of investment to be made. Right. So conceptually, this is quite old, if you will, you know, technology and technological terms. But the explosion of effort in Constructing something that is much more usable and more relevant to kind of the average user is something that is is very very new and to Michael to your point is something that's just that's just a critically important innovation that I agree with you does not get enough airtime. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. we're well, we'll trying to give
2: it some now. Anyway, yeah. Colin, clearly you know, I suppose let's just get a little bit more out of that. Like, why was it important to do this? What was wrong with Ethereum? Why couldn't we just build on Ethereum as it was? As you said, it had all these wonderful applications, all these great use cases, people building anything from NFTs to, to straight up DeFi projects to all sorts of matters, ICOs. It's the world computer, as, as they were for a while telling us. Why do we have to go a different route in terms of creating these layer twos and these alternative uh, structures around it?
0: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because this industry is a very iterative process. You know, you get these applications and you start building and then you realize things and then you have to iterate on the technology. What that meant in the case of Ethereum was scalability. So if you think of every 12 to 13 seconds, a new block is minted on Ethereum. That is a little bit too slow for a lot of financial applications. And then if you get a lot of people using it at the same time, you know you get this cool NFT collection that comes out and everybody is trading it and all excited about it. And there's a lot of transactions on chain gas fees on Ethereum, the amount of money you have to pay to trade those things or mint them, they spike. So you all of a sudden get people priced out of a market, you're paying like, call it $50 for a transaction on, a, on Ethereum. Like if you could think of a, of a car, it was almost pinning out. It was like the RPMs were just like redlining for two years, like the network usage was so high that the gas fees became very, uh, you know, very expensive literally pricing people out of the market, like they, you know, your average person just couldn't play in that arena anymore. So we realized in in the blockchain space, you know, if you want to get this technology in the hands of 100 million or a billion users, right, you're actually going to need much more scalability, you're going to need low transaction fees, and you're going to need uh, faster speed. And so I think Polygon has always been focused on those two ideas, even since the early days.
1: So I have a question, which is to some extent, it sounds like you're saying basically that Ethereum was almost a victim of its own success because there was so much demand, right? That this redlining, I think it's a great analogy of, of the car RPMs. This redlining, you know, kind of made it challenging for everyone who wanted to access it to access it, right? And so you had clogging and congestion and high gas fees and the things you've, you've mentioned. And of course, we saw one of the things that happened in 2022 was, of course, the merge. And so the shift and transition from paperwork to proof of stake. You mentioned that the security aspects of Ethereum are why Polygon is built the way it is, where it leverages essentially or builds upon that security. And I'm curious if the merge or contemplation of the merge changed anything in the way uh, that you think about that.
0: Yeah, the merge didn't change what a lot of people think it changed. Uh, We did something truly amazing. By the way, a technical feat, like among the most interesting in history uh, to do a, a change like that live to code and just have the thing run flawlessly, that was incredible. But really what it does, I think, is in taking uh, the technology from proof of work to proof of stake and reducing the carbon footprint like by 99%, that allows people to, to support it. Like If you're going to be a bank, it's going to settle transactions on Ethereum. The culture is not such that it's going to promote things that require a lot of energy use and electricity. Given what's happening with climate change, uh, so I, I think that that was incredibly important in terms of institutional adoption, because now institutions can get on board from an ESG perspective. And and to be honest, my view that was a massive, massive deal breaker. You can't have pension funds with large bases of constituents that are really focused on climate change and being green, participating in something that uses an incredible amount of energy like that. So I, I, th- I think that was huge, but not from a perspective of higher throughput or lower fees. That's just not, not how it works. Those things are potentially in the pipeline, right? We eventually have to get this technology between Polygon and Ethereum to get hundreds of thousands of, of TPS transactions per second. If we want everybody to be using this, we want a billion people, we want 8 billion people in the world to use this incredible technology, We as an industry need much higher throughput. Um, That didn't happen with the merge. But if you look at the Ethereum roadmap, there are things that will help that. And there are certainly things in the Polygon roadmap because we are laser focused on on solving for that issue and getting that high throughput. Those are all in the works from, from an industry perspective.
1: I couldn't agree with you more that most people really don't understand what the merge did and did not do. So really appreciate your articulating that. Let's talk a little bit about ESG. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the the big word, the, whatever, the big acronym, you know, there's been a lot of discussion lately. Is ESG dead? Is it overhyped? Is it, ha- have there been any achievements in it, et cetera? And so I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective as head of institutional capital, you know, how are the potential partners that you look at thinking about ESG from your perspective? And, and so it sounds like this is a selling point uh, in a very meaningful way. And I'm curious uh, in the role that you sit in, how you see the ESG conversation evolving in the connections and conversations you're having.
0: Yeah, I would say it's important. I mean, it's very important. If you listen to Larry Fink at BlackRock, the largest institutional asset manager in the world, around $10 trillion, it's very important to his constituents. I don't think it is necessarily a selling point and an enhancement, but I think it's a deal breaker. If we are running a system like that that uses that kind of energy, it will not allow the big players to participate given who their constituents are. So we kind of had to get that hurdle out of the way. And now the technology after that has to stand on its own. I think we went carbon negative, you know, in in the preceding couple of months. But yeah, it's it's also very important to us as as a culture. Okay, Colin. So you know, you're talking about like getting this to
2: you know eight billion people and everybody using this technology. DeFi, up until now at least, certainly has seemed a very complex, complicated thing. And we can talk a little bit later maybe about. How do we fix the UX? How do we make this thing, you know, beyond all of the environmental challenges, the scaling challenges, it's just got to be easier. But maybe talk a little bit about some of the things you've got. You've got Robin Hood involved and, and JP Morgan recently. Um, what, what are you reading from the participation of those types of institutions into the viability of DeFi as something that goes beyond, you know, a hobby really for crypto natives into something that's really quite constructive for, the mainstream, for institutions, for, for and therefore, for everybody by extension?
0: Yeah, there's, so there's a lot of topics. there. There's a lot of ways that we could go. I think some of the things that I think are important in that basket is getting financial services in the hands of everybody. Like we want to make DeFi as accessible to the world as running water. Think about places where you don't have access to borrowing and lending. You know, there's a lot of unbanked people in the world. Here in the here in the US where where I sit, it's less of a problem so people kind of scratch their head, they're saying why do I need this stuff? But there's a lot of people that literally don't have access to a bank account and defi allows for that. Right? It allows you to uh, have direct access to those kind of borrowing and lending call it I guess protocols in this in this case. The the UX UI issue, user experience user interface issue, that is critical. Like crypto has a complexity problem that needs to be solved first and foremost before you get mass adoption. It needs to be the Web2 interface where it is two clicks away. And I think Robinhood is doing a phenomenal job at that, being focused on, on solving those types of issues.
2: Okay. So it's like Robinhood, these sort of retail focused apps, you see them getting involved, in just like being able to smooth that out because Polygon itself had to try to, bridge my you know, matic from one chain to another. And 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 I'm relatively uh, well-schooled in this stuff. And I just find it confusing and time-consuming and really also fraught with the risk of something going wrong with, right? So many steps and so forth. So what are you guys doing? And, and, and maybe talk a little bit about how, if you're working with Robin Hood, how between the two of you are going to actually smooth out
0: those sorts of challenges. I, I think what you want to see is... A client that can go into an account, and this also gets into into tokenized assets. You know, I tell people, this is the year of institutional DeFi, and this is the year of tokenization of assets. These are very, very big themes, and they're all happening right now, like at a million miles an hour behind the scenes. And no one's talking about it because nobody can really announce it publicly until they're ready. But I'm telling you guys, everybody is coming. Like Mm -hmm. all the major players are coming in terms of tokenization of assets at minimum. And then you think like once something is tokenized, right? Like let's let's make a concrete example. Let's say you tokenize a private equity fund. Hamilton Lane came out and they announced two days ago that they had tokenized their flagship fund via Securitize using Polygon. Uh, and there's a lot of ramifications for that. But, but let's think about like back to the menu and ease of use. You can go to a, a portal like a Robinhood. You have a menu of options like that, the tokens that you can purchase that represent some degree, either real world assets or financial assets. And it's very easy. It goes kind of back to that like kind of two-click idea. And then, and here's where it gets really interesting in terms of the institutional DeFi, you can actually borrow against that position, right? Call it, that's a long-term position in your portfolio. Mm -hmm. You expect to make mid-teens returns over a period of years but in the meantime, if you see a high probability trade, you can borrow against that, execute the trade, and and still use that underlying position for leverage as collateral. And when when kind of that picture is is able to come together, I think it's going to be a very interesting world in terms of serving the customer and giving them the maximum amount of options. How do you
2: sell this to the average person, right? What are you what are you telling? When I mean, you talked a little bit about lack of access and so forth. I suppose when I look at DeFi, one of the things that I find uh, fascinating about it is that it solves some of the problems that have often been the back end problems, not the front end, not the users. That the, the fact that interest rates, for example, uh, are now not being controlled by some sort of cabal of, you know, LIBOR setting institutions, but literally by a marketplace. And similarly, like the, the management of collateral is not something that's up to a lawyer and a bunch of people deciding on when you're going to release this and sort of holding them into account in that regard. It's all done by this decentralized system, but that's back-end stuff. That's not something that necessarily the average Joe is gonna understand. All they wanna do is like, how do I get a loan, right? So how do you explain the benefits of a DeFi way of getting a loan than just sort of you know, uh,
0: going through a regular credit officer process? I think it has to do with access and breadth. And, and so what I mean when I say that, I, I think that if you are somebody that walks into a bank and I think a lot of us have had this experience in the real world and you hear the word no. Well, DeFi provides other options for that. There's, there's a wider pool of borrowers, a wider pool of lenders, a deeper market. So in some cases where you actually couldn't get access to credit before, DeFi could let you get access to credit in, in potentially a lot of cases. You know, the more the infrastructure gets built out, I think the more it will solve for that particular problem.
1: So let me ask a question just because I, I think a lot of times when people hear about uh, collateralization of people who can't otherwise get, you know, loans or mortgages or credit or whatever it is, people have a reaction to that. And they think about 2008 and they think about the bundling of risky, uh, putting credit risk together and trying to mask it as being actually legitimate and derivative products and MBS and all this kind of stuff. And so how do you address those uh, concerns that, I mean, I you know, you know where I'm coming from when I ask this question. Like I, I certainly believe this is a really critical endeavor to make our financial system more equitable, but it's a, it's a relatively frequent concern that people do raise.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The thing about DeFi is you also have full transparency. You can see the collateral on chain and it's run by algorithms. So it actually solves for those issues that you just mentioned. Like the challenge with 2008 was there was a massive lack of transparency. If people knew the books, like the collateral that Merrill Lynch had in 2008, would that have been a trusted counterparty? In DeFi, you know exactly, exactly the financial position of your counterparties at any given time. You can look because it's, it's all available on the blockchain, right? If it's permission DeFi, then it's, it's you know, permission to certain people that, that are the permissioned users. This is actually a solution for that.
1: The cabal you were talking about, Michael, right? There certainly were, would you believe they were cross-institutional or within institutions? Uh, cabals that were essentially setting the terms or how you bundle these things together and what's within them and all that kind of thing. And here, to the extent there would be like kind of a basket, you'd have visibility through into what the position of each of those assets in that basket actually was at any given time. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the average layperson could convert that into an appropriate risk assessment. Those are different things. But you can imagine a cottage industry of kind of analysts and this kind of thing that would enable you to decipher what those things meant. And then do your own kind of risk assessment about whether or not that was the right fit for for you, depending on who you is in this case.
0: Yeah, I think 100%. I think that could, that could spring up as part of the infrastructure that's needed. I'd actually like to address the idea that maybe a lot of these financial products are not fit for your average person. Like if you're getting back into 2008, you say, okay, there's a lot of people that got loans that shouldn't have gotten loans. I think the view within the crypto community and also within Polygon is generally, you want the people to have a choice. And, and I'll be very specific. You know, let's go, let's go back to Hamilton Lane. So the flagship product at Hamilton Lane is a private equity fund run by some of the smartest professionals in the world with access to information that the average person doesn't have. And therefore, they get very high returns. like call it mid-teens returns after fees. And your average person doesn't have access to that. And the, the reason for that is because right now, if you were to go to Hamilton Lane, you would have to be a qualified purchaser, a QP, with provable $5 million of net worth or more, i.e. you actually have to be a very wealthy individual to even participate in those mid-teens returns. And what I think we want to do at Polygon is we want to give people access to products like that, yeah. even though right now they're regulated in such a way to kind of protect people, right? And, and so what we did in the process of tokenization, I say we, it's really securitized, and it's Hamilton Lane. Like what happens in that process is it shifts the mix from people that can access that product from people with $5 million or more, like think pension funds and institutional, you know, ultra high net worth people to accredited investors where it's really like, you know, the bar is more like a million dollars in total assets, including home, $200,000, call it like, you know, annual income as a family. And it allows people that are average people, average in America. I realize those are big numbers for a lot of people. But it, it, it allows access to a much broader swath of the population, uh, to things that will help those people save for retirement, protect their families in the long term, and actually get to the upper classes that, could, that were the original people that could afford it in the first place. So if you think of the idea that in America and everywhere, there's a dispersion of wealth that is largely unequal, we have this challenge of inequality. In my mind, that's part of the problem. Like, Why do we have wealth inequality? the wealthy people have access to products that allow them to generate wealth at a faster rate that the rest of us don't have access to. And so I say, let the people choose.
1: It's funny to me that we have this whole category of of career called a wealth advisor. And the entire premise is that you are pre-wealthy to have a wealth advisor. And I often think, you know who really needs advice on how to manage (laughs) Their portfolio is somebody that doesn't have a lot of money, right? Like who really cannot afford, yeah, an anti-wealth advisor or whatever the opposite would be, like a poverty advisor. I mean, it's an interesting thing to me. When we talk about democratization of finance, we are talking at the early stages, I think we should be honest about about the democratization of high finance, right? Like not the average person going and getting a small business loan of kind of thing. We're talking about the access and democratization of access to sophisticated financial products that most people have no idea even exists because they cannot even dream of pre-qualifying because they don't have the pre-wealth requirements to even engage in the conversation in the first place. But I think it's important to, to draw that distinction because when it comes to thinking about institutional capital, which of course is the function, you know, the role that you have at, at Polygon, we're already talking about categorically institutions, pension funds, and others that have a tremendous amount of wealth and assets. And are trying to think about new and novel ways to engage in uh, the creation of even more return for themselves, right? So it's an interesting frame on on how you're talking about this. And I'm curious, the extent to which in your roadmap is the thinking about the development of, you know, institutional players that might represent smaller wealth individuals or smaller businesses or things like that. Is that in the roadmap?
0: You bring up a fascinating point. And thank you so much for bringing that up, because I'm very, very interested in the other end of the spectrum. Not the people that are already being served, but the people that can, through tokenization, get access to call it like fractionalized ownership, right? Think about the idea that somebody right now living in India, how do they buy a share of Tesla right now? Like, can they really get on TD Ameritrade and open an account and buy a share of Tesla? In most cases, the answer is no, especially like people maybe not in the commercial centers. What I want to see longer term through this this tokenization and fractionalization of assets is a guy in India that makes a thousand bucks a month and has direct access to tokenized markets to where that guy, if he wants to save for the long-term future of his family, he can put five percent of his income away by a fractional share of Tesla through his you know through whatever means he has, right whether it's an inexpensive cell phone and and truly have access to the financial services products that even call it the, the the middle or lower income people in America have access to. That to me is true, true democratization of, of financial assets.
1: Yeah. So I would just say that there are certainly such folks in the United States. They're in every country in the world, right? And so there are plenty of people here in this country that don't have that kind of access uh, and who make a shockingly low uh, non-living wage, right? So, so that's kind of one thing. But I also think this idea that you can subdivide, that so the cost of entry is not prohibitive because you don't have to own the entire share of something. You can actually subdivide it into as many subunits as is necessary to allow uh, folks to engage in it. And it comes down to, I think, the idea of empowering consumers with appropriate disclosures, education, things I think are really important that I think the regulatory landscape is trying to encourage, if not mandate, which is an interesting sidebar conversation, what that should look like they can engage in that because they can do their own assessment of risk and they can make a determination for themselves and their families do i want to lump in with this thing that you know that i that I, I may not fully understand right as an opportunity or not but the idea that you'd have that choice which currently does not exist in any meaningful way is really powerful i think it should start in places that are you know where it is now where the consumers of it can afford to take on a little more risk because we are in an experimental phase where things are evolving rapidly. And I think that risk should maybe be borne by folks that can kind of afford that risk. But over time, my hope is that there's going to be the openness you talk about, and this will be a tool available to everyone, and there will not be a pre-wealth qualification. We'll have to see how the whole thing evolves, because in my role, where I sit, one of the threats is that a regulatory environment Will determine that pre wealth is the only reasonable qualification and that without a certain amount of wealth ex ante, you should not be allowed to participate, which I find very unfortunate to say the least.
0: Yeah, no, I think we're 100% aligned. What we're talking about really goes back to the roots of crypto, right? Which is permissionless interaction with the economy. And we think everyone should have that. And think of there's a lot of use cases, right? But one use case I think of in my mind is. In a lot of cultures, if you are a woman, you don't have control of the finances. Your husband has total control of every aspect of your life, including your ability to interact with the economy and generate income. And it creates a situation where people have power over other people, total power over other people. Mm -hmm. You can't leave your spouse because you have no means of providing for yourself outside of that relationship, even if it's an abusive relationship for the, the original the OG so to speak crypto people like this is this was a very very important point if you are a smart person uh, that can is, is fully capable of transacting in, in the economy generating revenue through trading activities or commercial activities in any way you should have access to this technology and quite frankly these financial products
1: the history in the United States, even in the 60s, women finally got the right to open a bank account here. And it was like, I think, 74, when it became illegal to discriminate in credit assessment on the basis of gender, which is crazy. And that's in such recent times, relatively speaking. So yeah, that's really well taken. But yeah, Michael.
2: You're preaching to the choir, you know, Sheila and I talk a lot about, you know, access and, and dealing with this. and it sounds like we're all very aligned in where we would love to see all this go. And, and it's great to also be able to talk about the challenges, the scaling challenges and everything else again i come back to you to ux but but beyond just the sort of the complexity problem there's also the security challenge right like last year according to chain analysis i think it was the biggest year for hacks in DeFi, uh you know and rug pulls and all sorts of scams that happen um it's quite different from the FTX problem this is something that's about you know really the failure of certain smart contracts and bugs and so forth but also certain founders unscrupulous founders hiding behind the anonymity that the existing model provides to then be able to just like exploit those bugs in certain ways. So there's still a lot of insecurity there. That's obviously really, really important, if not just individuals, but also institutions, if anybody's going to trust this thing. So there's a lot there to unpack, but if we wound up, like, you know, I mean, I mean, what, what do we do like, I mean, is this about building a better system for, for bug bounties and audits and standards around smart contracts, uh, but also identity. There's this, Movement between DIDs and decentralized identities. And can we have our cake and eat it too? Maintain the decentralized ethos that obviously identity, if taken too far, can undermine, but yet obviously doing so in a way that provides the security that any sort of compliant institution or individual for that matter requires if they're going to participate in it.
0: Yeah, let's talk about security from two angles really quick. So if you think of the massive amount of money that was lost in bridge hacks. Zero-knowledge solves for that by only submitting proofs back to Ethereum. Hmm. The hacking issue is no longer there under a global regime of of zero-knowledge, which Polygon Hmm. is very focused on on bringing that solution to market. Let's look at it from a completely different angle. Let's talk about physical security and DID, decentralized identity. I was actually with a group last night. We were talking about this exact issue. Think about the idea that a young lady goes to a bar She's 21 and she presents her driver's license. And the guy looks at it and he stares at it and he looks at her and it has her address on that license. And, you know, a lot of men are like, what? I like you, this never, you'd never even think of this. But I think a lot of ladies out there, I mean, I'm married, I have a wife. Like these issues are real. Like there are people that can show up at your door after learning where your address is. And it is, it's completely a, a physical security issue, physical safety issue. And, and I realize I probably went in a different direction than I think that maybe... Yeah, I, I'm
2: actually know. familiar with the analogy because David Birch popularized it some time back. It's a classic one. But yeah, not all of our listeners would have heard it before. Keep going with it. Yeah.
0: But, but, but think about like with decentralized identity this is, and zero knowledge. This is the ability to share the things that you want shared with somebody. I.e., I am 21 years old. Without sharing everything else, it's right. it's a very powerful concept for a lot of lot of different thousands and thousands of use cases.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a classic, and and it sort of goes to everything around all this this broader challenge of data security that we face in the in the world. I share my medical records with with somebody and not expose to all of my history and everything else. Specifically, whatever is needed with regards to whatever procedure I'm doing to a certain credentialed person. All of that is is where where this is headed. So are you guys building for that are you are you structuring the the the, the polygon of the future around a did and credentialing based model that sort of decentralizes identity in some way
0: polygon id is one solution that we came up with that and, and there's a lot of people that are that are working on that that's our initial offering we're going to integrate that offering we will likely integrate others over time into a lot of things that we do because as a culture within polygon that is a very very important component of, of what's happening, what, what kind of problems we're trying to solve for. And again, back to how we're trying to serve those communities. It's a very, very important component.
2: Okay, one last thing before we go. And I just, I just was picked up on this line that you used some time back in the conversation. You talked about the tokenization of assets. And you said, everyone is coming. Uh, been hearing this for a while in other areas, like, you know, institutions are coming, mainstreams coming, it's all coming, it's coming, it's coming. How do we believe you? Like, I
0: mean, if it is, that's going to be a game changer, right? Yeah, I can speak at a very high level because I'm in all of these conversations. And so early on, I said, guys, like, thank you for allowing me to come hang out with you. This is my like break of my day. Like, I get to talk like a normal human being. The rest of my day, I'm going a thousand miles an hour because this is all being built right now in real time and it's coming soon. When is it coming? Watch the news over the next two weeks and you're going to see big announcement, big announcement, and it's going to keep coming. Because people have been working on this in private, very quietly for years at this point, and now is the time. This is an incredibly exciting time in history for tokenization, institutional DeFi, for crypto in general, in terms of adoption. Because when I say the institutions are coming, and they're all the big people, you're just going to see it.
2: Interestingly, of course, uh, this this episode won't actually air for another uh, a week and, and eight days, uh, eight days from now. So we'll uh, we'll see what's happened in the interim. But in in the meantime, look. Colin Butler, it was a, was a wonderful conversation thank you for going down this, this rabbit hole and back out again into the future and all other directions and uh, really sort of fun to see what you guys are doing and to actually have this sort of positive build, uh, optimistic, uh, opportunistic, uh, everything, uh, a story that's emerging out of this. So thanks for kicking off our first Sheila and Michael reunion podcast episode for 2023 in such a light. Really appreciate it. Thanks.
0: Michael, Sheila, thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure.
2: All righty. And thank you all for listening. Do come back again next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. Bye for now.
1: You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Musso. Announcements by Adam B. Levine and our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.
0: Chime Secure Credit Card. You can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details.